The material contained in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. You should not act or fail to act on anything based on any of the material contained herein without first consulting with a lawyer. My guests and I strive to ensure accuracy in this podcast, but we do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any of its contents. Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto, and I run GS Jameson & Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast, I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy, and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS Jameson on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. We are now heading into part two with Abir Day after wrapping up a discussion on the seed market in Canada in part one. Here's Abir in studio in Toronto. So is this a Canadian specific problem? Um, Do you think this is an international thing? It's like when I think of when I think of the sort of broader discussion about seed, it's largely been about intellectual property and it's largely happened over the last uh, notionally over the last forty five years, but really over the last say twenty or twenty five, where we have decided that that plant breeders' rights are are critical to to evolving seed, and we've signed treaties to that effect, and we've essentially agreed to privatize a lot of the more conventional like industrial seed markets uh, and taken them out of public hands. Well, I guess uh, I've got a variety of questions for you here, as usual. Is this something that's related to these treaties? Is this an international experience where the, the public sector has sort of retreated from having an active role in the production of, uh, of germplasm or of seed uh, that's specific to a certain region? And then the second part is, internationally, have we all just sort of accepted that this should be something that is handled by industrial seed producers? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to uh, be brief. That's the thesis paper, basically. <laughs> like, that's gonna, your dissertation. I'm going to try to be brief on this, and uh, I'm going to try to do it without too many... Gl- eyes glazing over but uh to your first point in terms of whether this is kind of uh uh, like unique to canada and especially in terms of the decline of the public sector no that's that's a trend that has um you know been mirrored by you know countries all all over the world um it's manifested in different ways there's other countries that are much more supportive of their growers than uh uh, the canadian government and there's some countries that are way less supportive um a really important point to to remember when we think about the loss of public support for agriculture is the loss of farmers that have existed. Um, you know, it's a really small percentage of the population. Um, and the only sector in farming where the number of farmers are growing is in the organic sector. Everything else, it's, it's, it's in decline, and it's, it's less farmers and bigger farms. Um, so that political will 
to mobilize government in a really inclusive way to service, uh, you know, um, all types of farmers from like a really broad spectrum of, of farming practices doesn't really exist. It's not a big voice for Canada. And it's just been in decline for, you know, decades. So from like a very utilitarian perspective, you're not going to allocate a lot of public resources towards a really small percentage of the of the population. That, I think, is it. And, and so whatever we haven't been able to do in the public sector has been adopted by the private sector because they can do it more efficiently. And, you know, um, farmers might not be making money, but lots of agribusiness companies are. Right. Um, so there's a, there's a huge kind of, um, on the surface, sort of superficial understanding that like, well, you know, the private sector can do this really well. They have the money to invest in research and breeding, let them take over that. And they can sell seeds to farmers too. So, you know, there's no reason for us to really get our hands in this one. It's already being covered really more efficiently uh, by the private sector. What that misses is the whole idea of access. And that like, as soon as you privatize something, you're excluding somebody from that, from that good. And you know, I think it's a it's a huge mistake that we've made to not think of farming, um, or to rather deprioritize farming as, as as public service, and that even if there is a smaller percentage of the population population that's working on this, we collectively as a society have to identify this as something important, and that's how that's how you're able to leverage more public support for this type of work, so that we can have public breeding programs, we can have funding for um, conservation of older seed varieties um, um, and 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 support uh, voices that are often marginalized in the agricultural conversation, which are voices of organic uh, growers and ecological growers. So that sort of decline in public support and the decline in political will um, is sort of like you know chicken and eggs sort of scenario, and that's I can't maybe authoritatively say whether this is true for all countries, but I would say that it most mostly is. It's amazing to hear you describe it because in Canada, in the latter part of the 20th century, a lot of time was spent taking public assets and making them private or private with strings attached. When we talk about stepping outside of this space of designing seed and letting the free market figure out what seeds it wants to propagate and make money off of, which is fine, you think about how Air Canada was privatized and Air Canada was privatized with strings attached. So it didn't just run the Montreal to Toronto junket. It also still flies to Moose Jaw and Kamloops and Sydney, Nova Scotia, like places where no naturally private operator would right. fly without an exceptional price tag attached right. to it. Right. Whereas in the agricultural sector, it sounds like we were pretty content to let the, the free market govern. Yeah, and, and historically, it's because a lot of the public research stations and uh, breeding programs and extension offices um, weren't really generating a lot of revenue. Um, you know, they were often losing a lot of money for, for, the, for the government. Um, that doesn't mean that good research wasn't being done or good services weren't being provided. It just meant that, you know, it was a drain on, on a lot of the, the operating costs of, of, of government. Coincide that with a uh, softer and softer voice of the farmer. You don't have a lot of people fighting to keep these services open. There's very little incentive for uh, you know folks that are that are governing the country to keep these types of programs alive. 
I, I think we're at a stage right now that we have a community of growers, and that's the organic and ecological sector, that is growing and is demanding for these services. And, you know, they're advocating that, you know, there are needs that they require that are not being adequately serviced um, in an affordable way or in uh, a way that suits their needs uh, from the private sector. And, you know, that's where we, that, that's a gap. And that's what the nonprofit sector is filling. But there needs to be more than just us to do that work because that work could potentially be done more efficiently by, you know, a public sector body that might have more resources to be able to support farmers in a better, more comprehensive and more sustainable way. Um, and, and, and that's so like, yes, there's a lot of doom and gloom talk, but there's a huge opportunity there to service this growing political voice. And a lot of these actors are very politically engaged in, in terms of the population that is farming you now have a growing segment in that population and they are they're continuously growing they've been growing year after year and you know that might be an area worth servicing and worth investing in and that even if there is not you know revenue generating profit generating services they're still servicing people and they're those flights to moose jaw you know that right. that, that that are worth maintaining because there there are going to be some people that are benefiting from that I mean, this notion of sort of acknowledging a problem but not doing a whole lot about it, it's also inherent in the treaties that uh, Canada signed on to. Like, uh, on one hand, some treaties say that, that we really need to to diversify the crops that farmers grow and put re- place resources to furthering that goal. And on the other hand, we've got fairly rigid uh, intellectual property rights that are being bestowed upon seed producers and great encouragement placed on farmers to grow those types of varieties. As Bauda or, or you personally, how do how do you get think farmers exist between those two treaties or those two competing policy goals? It must make your position to try and create a local seed system even more confusing because you've got on one hand, a document that says we absolutely should be supporting exactly what it is you guys do. Like Bauda should be like that is within our mandate. And we have essentially promised a ton of other countries that this is our deal. And at the same time, we sign another deal. It's basically like, don't worry about Bauda. Free market will sort it out. Let's focus on some some new types of, of wheat that a company may or may not produce. You more, you more or less said it. It's uh, this really fascinating paradox that exists between these really strong humanitarian commitments that we'll make at a national level and then other multilateral commitments that we'll make that are influenced strictly by economic trade and, and, and development. And, you know, that's been a long-standing tension between any kind of environmental issue uh, and social issue. The dollar kind of trumps mostly everything. And it's not clear how to uh, how to reconcile those 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 two kind of often opposing tensions. What we try to do with our work is, you know, although I've advocated a lot for public support, um, so much of our work is, is, is focused on supporting farmers to make this type of activity sustainable um, through the market, um, whether that's through, you know, engaging and supporting uh, um, the development of uh, farmer cooperatives to make this stuff a bit easier in terms of capital accumulation uh, to make, um, you know, the distribution of operating costs uh, easier to as farmers are scaling up so that, you know, it's not one farmer that's taking on the responsibility of, you know, servicing and expanding uh, the sector on their own, but it's a collaborative effort from a number of different farmers using market mechanisms 
um, you know, that's something that we're constantly trying to explore. Like we, we are not rejecting the prospect of making a seed industry viable through the market. In fact, that's what we'd like to see happen. Um, you know, it's, it's, it would be great if the market could support this type of work because it would make the work that we're doing obsolete. If on-farm conversa- conservation and breeding and development of organic varieties were were like super profitable endeavors that could sustain the work itself, there'd be no need for for the better program, and there'd be no need for calling for public support to sustain and fund these types of activities. But that's not the case, and. Um, making those types of activities financially stable sustainable in the market uh is kind of like it 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 can't happen yet without our support or without some type of external funding support because the market's just not ready for it and and it'd be we already ask farmers to do so much on top of providing us with all the food that we need to eat they now have to take on the responsibility of solving the seed crisis. And how much more are you going to be able to, how much more can you demand of, of, of farmers, especially organic and ecological growers, to do? Um, there has to be some sort of give and leeway coming from other folks that, that are able to help that. Um, so that's where it kind of like the tension, that that's so that tension that you were describing earlier is that, you know, this stuff isn't immediately profitable, you know, there, but the long-term gains that can be generated from this, especially when the organic sector grows as it's projected to grow, could be substantial. And, you know, there's no reason to not invest and in work in building that now so that the, that when it, this is at a scale um, that where it can manage and, and run for itself, you know, you have a diversity of folks that have been able to benefit from that process instead of being excluded as things have gotten bigger. And I think that's like, that's a lot of what we're trying to do with our work, that the folks that are doing this work on the grassroots level are rewarded and supported in their efforts. And that when, you know, inevitably this stuff does kind of start to commercialize and scale up, um, all folks that are doing this type of work can benefit from it so that like it's not just the largest scale organic producer that's reaping the benefits of an organic seed system but it's producers of all scales and i think in order to build that sort of inclusive economy and that inclusive sort of um uh, seed system work like this that operates at a grassroots level with a you know public broad social benefit in mind that's where the value is and there's always maybe, let me, I might be contradicting what I said before, but there's always going to be a need for that. You know, there's always going to be a need for, I love that example, that flight to Moose Jaw. Right. And somehow, some way we have to prioritize that in, in, in public kind of funding discussions. Largely, we're speaking from a farmer's perspective when we're talking about this sort of thing. But what role can a consumer have? in advancing this sort of conversation. I mean, one of the first times that I came across the notion of uh, of chefs being engaged in, in the production of seed or engaged in sort of fostering how how plant breeders' rights are, are used in a way other than just to increase yield uh, was uh, Dan Barber. There's a, like an hour-long documentary uh, called Chef's Table on Netflix. 
and it's very good. And he has a relationship with uh, with the university in New York, and they try and develop more flavorful uh, vegetables. Like the goal isn't to make the most, it's to make uh, the tastiest or the most nutritious. Yeah, the, the anecdote there was uh, Dan Barber like went up to him and, and showed like a small butternut squash and said like, or showed a butternut squash. It's like, I need this to be smaller and I need it to still taste as good. <laughs> and uh, the breeder, Michael Mazurik from Cornell, was like, that was the first time somebody's ever asked me to breed for, for flavor. Make a smaller vegetable for me, please. This one's far too large. But like, but it's an important question. I mean, so so some chefs are reaching out, or there's some chefs are making the connection between uh, seed and uh, and the genes in germplasm, and then the product on a plate. And consumers have largely become alive to this idea of ecologically grown food or organic food, like you referred to. It's exploded. Uh, in what way can we engage in this discussion about open source seed or about publicly owned seed or seed that is designed specifically for these purposes? Tough one to answer, and, and that's a lot of what our work is focused on, is on educating, first on educating farmers and growers, and then on the public to build a broader sort of movement and, and, and ultimately political will on, on issues of seed production in, in, in Canada. There are uh, a number of different types of community-organized events across the country. They're called uh, CD Saturdays and CD Sundays. And uh, you can find out you know, all the information on all of these events on a really simple uh, website called seeds.ca. That's the website for Seeds of Diversity. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because these are community-run events that are, they're not sponsored by the Bowda Initiative. They've just been happening all over the country forever because community members have galvanized together and figured out you know what would be great is if we you know called a bunch of local seed producers had them come into a community center or a church or a banquet hall or whatever and just sell local seeds to gardeners every every sort of winter and spring season and then maybe we can run some seed workshops there and maybe we can you know have some gardening workshops and uh, if you have saved some seeds your own from your backyard or from your grandpa or from your mom who gardens bring that to this seed exchange and have like a little sweet seed swap. And these are like super, you know, grassroots oriented and developed events that, you know, across the country, there's hundreds, any community, um, you'll find there's like a CD Saturday or a CD Sunday. And in the States it's seed exchanges and, and, and whatever, you know, those are super simple events. They're not, they don't require a lot of political will. They don't require a lot of work. You just show up, you see some seed growers and you have a conversation about, you know, food, gardening and seeds. And it's such an easy, accessible way to start to understand what this space looks like and also what this space could look like. And those are those are those are very simple. But I think before somebody comes to an event like that, they have to start thinking about food right. and where their food comes from. And, you know, that's the conversation that sparks you know, everything that we've talked about today. And, you know, people will find different sorts of, you know, aha moments when they start to think about where their food comes from. Yeah. But once they have that aha moment, there's lots more to have after that. And seed is one of those ones that kind of once that light bulb goes off, it sticks with you. And yeah, so like, that conversation has to continue to happen in a variety of different ways. And it's happening at farmers markets. Once people are into it, I think our goal at that stage is to really sort of develop that conversation once folks are, are already a part of it. 
it's really hard to, I think, rope people in on the issue of seed when they're not even thinking about the issue of food. But once they are thinking about the issues of food, as more and more people are, it's, you know, on us to represent the interests of farmers and seed growers to bring that seed um, topic into the conversation and to the public. It's, I mean, it's a great answer. So, so through Bada, things that I had never considered before, uh, just really being an idiot, once you sort of, you become aware Definitely of it, not being an idiot. Um, is how does lettuce create seed, yeah. right? And so actually seeing a grown out head of lettuce that has gone to seed, it's like shocking. No, no idea that that was a thing. And then the second piece is, is just really contemplating what biennial vegetables look like. I mean, that you need to plant something and wait two years for it to show up with anything that can reproduce more of, of seed with your onion or your beet. And it's also like shocking. Again, I think it's that idea of, uh, of you know, millennial sort of entitlement and, <laughs> and, and unlimited supply that we often get bashed with. But it's like, I just assumed you got seed from the seed store and sure. there would always yeah. be seed. Why would I need to stop and think about this? I don't know where it comes from. Yeah. Seeds just exist. Yeah, foods come from grocery stores and seeds come in packets. It's so simple. But then to stop and actually look at what's involved in doing some of these things, that it's completely shocking that we're able to farm beets on an industrial level, or not industrial, but on a large scale. And I, I guess one of the things that I just want to say to that point is that this organization, Seeds of Diversity, that's the... Um, sort of main organization that's been stewarding this this work in Canada for a number and number of years and has just it's been just doing some incredibly innovative work. Uh, they have an, a relationship with Plant Gene Resources of Canada. So um, Seeds of Diversity essentially runs a seed bank um, where they store you know all the different varieties that come from gardeners and farmers and you know that's a core central part of the the program that that we run through them, which is then taking those varieties that are stored in the seed bank and re-released into growers' fields and grown out and, and, and sent back to us. They've done some really awesome work at just demystifying this whole process of how to grow seed. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, they'll say that they don't have a green thumb, so there's no way that they can grow lettuce. And then one year when they just try to plant some lettuce seeds and grow them, like, it's not that hard. It just requires a bit of water and some TLC. And obviously it's more than that when you're doing it at a farm scale, but seed saving is the same sort of thing. And, and Seeds of Diversity has an amazing number of resources that demystify that whole process, right? Tomatoes, you see tomato seeds all the time. You see um, melon seeds all the time. Right. Um, it's just taking that extra step to figure out how to save them, preserve them, and grow them out for next year. Um, obviously some crops are more complex than others, but this stuff isn't like your grandparents were doing it, Our, my grandparents were doing it, and um, it's not that many generations removed. Um, and it's also not a super um, difficult thing in the sense that like we have been doing this longer than we've been doing many other things. Yes, you know, <laughs> We've been growing seed for a really long time. It, you know, it's only a short part of human history where like this isn't something that like everybody knows. Um, and you know, it's a testament, I think, to the simplicity of like the process for why that knowledge is really so easy to transfer, right? This is what nature does. And we're really, we were really good stewards at it. And a lot of our, a lot of us are really good stewards of it now, but you know, the state that we're in, we just, we need more of us to be really good stewards at, at it. This, this ancient ability to seed save is, is an important conversation because in a lot of ways, 
it's so simple and it's part of being being human uh but we've also decided for the most part the western world has decided that it shouldn't always be a farmer's right anymore to save this stuff when we enter back into the universe of uh, of not patented but of of plants with novel traits the the nature of of how intellectual property rights and plants with novel traits which in in canada that's what we call uh gmos um you know that that is an issue that exists for um a lot of conventional growers so growers that are not organic or ecological um a lot of the seed that gets used in conventional farming systems are seed that have proprietary restrictions on them or are genetically modified or as you were saying plants with novel traits so it's a lot of farmers in in the conventional systems that have a very kind of linear relationship with production where they buy seeds they grow out the seeds sell the food and then buy seeds again um those are the constituents that are the that are actually the most disadvantaged by these types of regulations. Um, organic growers and ecological growers, a lot of the seeds that they use in their systems, um, some of them have those proprietary restrictions on them, um, but many of them don't. Um, in particular, a lot of the crops that we grow for, for vegetables, you know, don't have a lot of proprietary restrictions on them. So for, to build the vegetable seed industry, it's, it's, there's a huge opportunity to be able to do that and to do it well and completely within legal means. Um, so when I hear about all these kind of restrictions on farm saved seed that exist, um, it, it mostly impacts, uh, growers that we don't often work with that said, any kind of national regulation that passes that is dictating or putting, you know, power in the hands of some external agency that's influenced by international political economic pressures to dictate whether farmers are able to save their seed, organic or not, you know, it's insanely problematic. You know, this is something that is, you know, a farmer's right. And, you know, I think by you know the, the the wording in uh in the recent regulation that Canada adopted uh, bill C18 uh the wording is a farmer's privilege and that's really problematic it's, it's sorry it's it's the farmer's privilege to you know save proprietary seed like that's that's what they get you know that's what we that's what we're allowing them to do we've given them this privilege which is crazy right like it's it's very 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 problematic in terms of a philosophy that's guiding those types of regulations, right? A farmer's privilege to, a farmer's, it's not their privilege, it's their right to be able to save seed. And this is something that's shared among all types of farmers, regardless of what type of agriculture you wanna practice. Um, so, you know, the regulations that exist now, like if you're farming organically and ecologically, um, you know, as long as you're not using proprietary seed, which often you're not, you're kind of, you're okay. You're not, you know, in, you're not at risk of getting into trouble or anything like that. Um, but the broader issue here is that like you, we can't be passing regulations that are dictating a farmer's ability to, to farm, right? right? And saving seed is, is, is part of farming. Right. And like, you can't just compartmentalize that as something that a farmer cannot 
can or cannot do. Um, and I think that's that's ultimately like the biggest takeaway to to think about um, when we start looking at these regulations is not so much what the impacts of these regulations are, but what is the philosophy that's guiding these types of policy frameworks? Because that's what's going to be influencing policy frameworks 10 years down the road. Right. Um, And that's also what's going to be influencing how we choose to manage and deliver public support, right? If a farmer, you know, it's those types of philosophies are, are, are really problematic. They, they come from, you know, an interesting space because you know, it, like I mentioned before, it takes a lot of money to breed and develop new varieties of seeds. So it's understandable that you want to have certain protections in place. So all of that investment and all of that research isn't wasted. This is like, I'm not trying to say that, you know, there shouldn't be certain instruments in place to uh, adequately compensate people who have invested this work. Right. And we've got, they've got a thriving seed business, whereas, uh, can, whereas ecological grown seeds don't. Right. Exactly. Uh, but we also can't pass a regulation and then that, that rewards breeders and then marginalizes farmers. Right. Um, and, th- and that's ultimately the kind of tension that I think we should really challenge ourselves as folks that are interested in agriculture and in how public support systems work in general to sort of rethink and reestablish because that's a really problematic relationship. Going to law school, you spend a lot of time talking about freedom of contract and just the ability for a, an individual to act rationally and make decisions and then have to live with those consequences. But what seems really difficult in this case, in particular with how you break down uh, the issues from field crops to, to vegetables, is that we're sort of stuck with a a one-size-fits-all series of, of acts that don't really help a lot of the smaller, more traditional stewards of uh, ecological farming and are really built with the farmer who runs a full section in Saskatchewan. And from my view, like that seems to be one of the biggest problems here is that like in a way, like I don't have a huge problem with a farmer deciding that they can contract out of a bunch of what their traditional rights are, right? Like that's something that we can kind of do. But the idea of, of this legislative framework that's built for a very specific situation being thrust upon farmers that want to live outside of that IP framework is really troubling. Yeah, and it's, it's not farmers that are developing these, these regulations. You know, it, that, that voice of, of, of that farmer who is marginalized, you know, their, their, their voice isn't heard when these types of regulations are being developed and, and passed. Um, you know, the people that are stewarding these types of policies um, have a very narrow-minded view of what agriculture is and what it can be. Um, so it's, you know, regrettable but almost understandable why this kind of stuff wouldn't have provisions in place to be more inclusive of ecological smallholder farmers. Right. Uh, because there's nobody at the decision-making level that represents that voice. And that's an enormous misstep on policymakers at national and international levels. If there was someone advocating on their behalf, there would be some reward for farmers undertaking goals of diversity and of, of banking seed. And there just doesn't seem like there is a whole lot outside of uh, temporary funding for organizations like yours. So there's our work. And then what I should also bring into play is, is the work that USC does on an international level. Um, 
and you know that relates to the international commitments that Canada has made um, for this international treaty called uh, the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Agriculture, and you know that treaty sort of if you're a signatory to that treaty, you're mandated to preserve and conserve varieties that are suitable for sustainable agriculture on farms. You want to be able to support on-farm conservation of varieties. Canada has a commitment to that treaty. And there are international meetings that happen um, with different delegates and representatives from NGOs and governments to come together to discuss the progress of that type of work that that treaty has committed to doing. And USC uh, has members in, in international countries and, and now through the Butter Program in Canada to sit on those types of meetings. Um, and those are all like really amazing, interesting, powerful sorts of conversations. You know, and these treaty meetings have been happening, you know, every two years or every year. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too sure on the frequency of them. But while those were happening concurrently, you have a regulation like UPOV that gets passed. So it's not that there's, you know, a, so and, and those treaty meetings are voices for smallholder farmers and ecological growers and stuff like that. And these are organized by governments and these are organized by international agreements. So you're putting all of these resources into making those discussions possible and you're just completely dismissing that entire conversation and dialogue when you're crafting and signing on to international treaties that contradict those those types of regulations and it's just really it's it's a it's a paradox i don't know how again it goes back to that sort of issue that we were talking i don't know how to reconcile these ecological and social demands that we have in agriculture with kind of profit driven industry driven uh, trade and economic demands that often seem to trump a lot of those kind of other types of conversations and issues. So the treaties that we're speaking around but not actually discussing, I guess, uh, are it's the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture on one hand. On the other hand, it is uh, UPOV, which is uh, like a general framework for intellectual property rights in plant breeding. Can you can you take us into sort of like what these two frameworks mean for for an ecological farmer? Like that's yeah. a huge discussion. Again, I keep on asking questions that you could write dissertations on. So thank you for putting up with my unbelievably broad and not terribly guiding cover. Thank you for asking them. Um, the International Plant Treaty, um, as I mentioned just loosely before, is a, a basically a the goal of that treaty is to preserve the genetic diversity um, of varieties that are available for agriculture globally. Um, so the seed bank in, in Norway uh, and the, the Global Crop Diversity Trust that manages it is strongly related to, to the work of this IT. Uh, I get the acronym screwed up all the time, but the, but the plant treaty, let's just call it the plant treaty. Um, Love it. We, there's enough acronyms in the work that we do. Uh, and then Plant Gene Resources of Canada is our Canadian body that represents that treaty. And, and what we're mandated to do through that work is to invest and support um, on-farm conservation of uh, varieties that are suitable for ecological agriculture. That's essentially what the Bowder program is, is funding and doing through breeding programs, training programs, 
different types of on-farm research programs, seed grow-up programs, and a, and a number of other uh, types of initiatives. On the other hand, um, so that's what we're doing as a nonprofit. Even though the the government has signed on to do that work, we're doing it as a nonprofit, and there's really not a lot of support coming from the government to follow through on that mandate. And that's 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 if you can tell, that's really problematic. Um, on the other hand, you have uh, we're a signatory to uh, UPOV ninety one, which is the International Union of Plant Variety Protection. Um, that might not, again be the exact translation, but it deals with plant breeders' rights uh, or different types of plant variety protection mechanisms in Canada. We know them as plant breeders' rights. And essentially what UPOV 91 has done... So I guess, so there are two of these then. So there's 78, 1978, and then 1991. There were two different treaties that were put together? Yeah. Our, we, we had previously signed on to UPOV 78, which was the initial sort of multilateral sort of treaty that worked to kind of streamline and harmonize the way uh, protections and uh, intellectual property rights would work for new varieties of, of plants that were going to be developed. That got, quote unquote, modernized into a new regulation called UPOV 91 later on, and Canada signed on to that through um, a bill called Bill C-18 um, just, uh, just last year. And the the biggest issue with that, as as I had mentioned uh, kind of before, was that it introduced all of these additional restrictions and uh, privileges to plant breeders, um, and it, it it created a stronger enforcement um, regime on penalizing folks that would be um, using materials that were developed. Um, with different types of protections on them. So any type of proprietary seed that would come out of Canada that would have a plant breeder's right on them, um, you know, the length of that plant breeder's right's been extended. The penalties for saving that seed and reselling that seed, um, those sorts of restrictions have been expanded. Um, You know, it's, it's little tweaks to those enforcement mechanisms without going into too much detail that have changed. And again, a lot of them don't impact ecological growers because most ecological growers are not using proprietary seed. But the broader issue here is that you are putting in enforcement mechanisms that are restricting the ability of farmers to save seed and farm. And again, the impetus for how that kind of came to be is because we want to be able to protect the investment that goes into plant breeding because it's significant. And we want to make sure that all the stakeholders that have put in all the work into developing new varieties are adequately rewarded, but we can't do that. And also disadvantage and exclude farmers from participating in that process of saving that seed. It's a little like arrogant to think that we can pass a regulation that restricts um you know genetic germplasm from being shared and developed and grown by farmers when that is how new varieties were developed for millennia yeah and all of the germplasm that is that has been used for the development of new varieties was all public germplasm at the beginning anyways so then to say and to introduce a type of plant variety protection system that says this variety is mine, you can't have it anymore, is like, 
I mean, it's kind of contradictory and, and, and really arrogant. Like, there's so much history in that seed. It's not just the money and the investment and that time that that breeder put into it, even though that's really significant. But there's a huge genetic lineage to that seed variety that goes back, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of generations. And, you know, where do you want to draw the line here? And I think there there should be a way to adequately compensate gr- breeders but you can't restrict that use of that of that germplasm. You can't, you know, say that it's somebody's because we have agriculture as it exists today because we've been saying that seed is everybody's. It's part of the commons. Right. Um, so anything that gets implemented in place that goes against that is insanely, you know, troubling, um, especially in the face. Again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking before, especially in the face of you know, you have a treaty that you've also signed on to that pretty much has that idea of seed being as a part of the commons at its core. I don't know how you can hold both things. What we're trying to do with our work is try to bring that contradiction to light through supporting that seed is the commons approach to say, like, listen, Canada, like we can, this is important work and we can, and we've, we've identified it as important work. Let's like start walking the talk here. Right on. It's a, Amongst lawyers, we have an expression for that, and it's uh, it's awfully tough to suck and blow at the same time. <laughs> okay, well, something that I'm really curious about, uh, just before we wrap up here, is how did you find yourself in this this universe of open source seed? Like, what's your story leading on, leading into this? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you know what, my background would be really similar to maybe a lot of folks that have kind of gotten into the food space, which is, I wasn't interested or involved in this type of work growing up. I, you know, never thought that I would end up, you know, my parents definitely never thought that I'd end up working in the farming sector. Uh, but it came out of like, just like, you know, my question of being involved and being interested in ecological and social issues just paying attention to those types of things but my background was in was in business and uh, we never talk about these types of things in in academic business programs um so i you know i totally understand when people are making all these free market arguments um for you know you know how to monetize and commercialize this type of work i i get all of that but i think um i started really kind of getting passionate about ecological and social issues because there were not enough satisfactory answers to how to address them in the field of business and, and economics. Um, so I started looking into how I could contribute to addressing any of these issues, but I still didn't really find my footing in an issue until I started thinking about food. And, um, you know, I had read uh, Pollen's Omnivore's Dilemma is often a lot of people's gateway drug into the food system stuff. And uh, that's that's what got me into it. but. Like, I kind of didn't stop there and just uh, kind of wanted to dig deeper on a lot of the things that he was bringing up and uh, did a grad program at York on environmental studies and was really interested in, in food systems through through that work. And I was writing all these papers on food policy and I was talking about all these things that farmers should be doing and they should be going organic and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, I am a, you know, first generation Canadian uh, middle-class dude talking about what farmers should be doing and shouldn't be doing and, you know, acting like I know best when at that time I didn't even know how to plant a tomato. I didn't know that lettuce 
produced seed, I had no idea. And, um, you know, so I thought one of the great things that what York would do is they would ask folks to really kind of engage themselves in participatory research and really challenge them to, you know, step outside the ivory tower, you know, really challenge the role of the academic. And I, and I owe it to that sort of uh, impetus to kind of put me in a place where I where I really needed to engage with farmers. And, you know, that led me to uh, Everdale, where I work now, which is uh, a farmer training organization. And I did a, uh, a, it's a farm, it's a nonprofit, and it's a farmer training organization. Um, and I did an internship there, um, just trying to understand and learn what it was like to be an organic farmer. If I was asking folks to transition and to make that transition and to make that commitment, I should at least try to understand what that work is like. What I didn't expect was to like it as much as I did. Um, you know, once you start doing the actual work, you start to really gain a completely new appreciation and understanding for food, how it's grown. And for me, when I was there, it, you know, people, a lot of people gravitate towards livestock. A lot of people gravitate towards vegetables. Um, I happen to gravitate towards seed. I really thought that that was a fascinating part of the food system. And it felt like it was getting to the root of a lot of the issues that exist. And sure enough, when I started looking into what to focus my research on, um, you know, not a lot of people were doing a lot of work on seed. And this was a gap that needed filling. If, there, if it was already addressed, I would have just looked at another gap. But it just so happened to be seeds as that gap. And, uh, you know, as soon as I started understanding the issues that existed in this space, and, you know, really started appreciating and respecting the process of, you know, how seed is literally produced. I was kind of hooked. And, um, you know, that led me to, to where I am today. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Uh, I'm going to plug a number of different organizations. Yeah, let's go. First and foremost, uh, we have uh, the Bouda Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security. You can find more information on www.seedsecurity.ca. Um, and then our lead organizations, USC Canada, that's uscanada.org, and Seeds of Diversity Canada, which is seeds.ca. And where I am based out of is Everdale. It's an organic teaching farm in Hillsburg, Ontario. And we run a number of different on-farm training programs, as well as run an organic market garden. Um, and you can find out more information about Everdale at www.everdale.org. And uh, it's a farm that is open to the community, so come visit anytime, and you can learn lots about growing food and especially growing seed. That's amazing. All right, well, look, thank you so much for coming into studio. It has been an absolute pleasure, a mind-blowing pleasure, spending time with you here today. Pleasure is all mine, Glenford. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Food Court. We'll be back next month with another episode exploring food law and policy. Until then, we hope you enjoyed our discussion. Thanks to Shane McPherson for our music and to you for listening. Mm-hmm.